0: of us is the desire to explore, to venture out, to leave behind the ordinary and find something new. New places, new paths, new challenges. We look for adventure and for a tomorrow that asks more of us than today. We want to hear the wind in the trees. We want to look out across the expanses. We want to take in the beauty around us and find the thrill the average person never does so we set out to find a better way in our relationships in our pursuits and in our faith life trails take the next step Good morning, Waterford. It is great to be with you, as always. Man, I am just... I can tell you, I'm a little overwhelmed by worship this morning. Um, that was great worship. You're such great singers, and uh, for for all the times that we've been together, uh, I think this is the best you've ever sang. So, um, that, was, that was really great. Um, presence of God just is here in this place. We can always feel it wherever we go, but when we can worship together as a family, it just... Just changes things, doesn't it? It just changes the atmosphere. It just creates in us just a way that we want to go. And man, that was really great this morning. So thank you to Kelsey and the team for that. So, um, yeah, so this is it. This is my final message here to Waterford. And when I was thinking through, What I wanted to say, what I wanted to bring, I just said. You know what? Let's try and keep it simple. Um, Let's just try and go right into the word. So, what we're going to do this morning is we are going to continue in this No Shame November series. We have been working our way through this confrontation of of shame that's in the Bible. We've been working through this confrontation. We have to hit shame head on because. We don't want to be defined by that. And so we want to be people of no shame, living in uh, a way that works for the kingdom, that, that is relevant to the way God is working in our lives. So. I want to look at two separate stories. I want to look at one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And so we're going to start in the Old Testament as one does when you want to tell things chronologically. And we're going to start with a story about Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet, one of God's uh, missionaries, one of his uh, uh, men who wanted to seek um, after God at a time when not so much of Israel wanted to seek after God. And so Elijah came at this moment. And he is, um, he is sort of standing in the gap, as it were, as a person who is sharing God and telling God's uh, story to people that don't really want to listen to it. Elijah goes on a really kind of crazy ride for about three years in the middle of a book called First Kings. And I encourage you to go and read through this story of Elijah and what he goes through, particularly starting at the end of chapter 16, where Ahab becomes king of Israel, and all the way through um, to the end of chapter 18. We are going to focus primarily on just the middle of that chapter, of uh, chapter 18 today. But I do need to set up the story just a little bit, because we need a little context for what our story is. Um, because we just can't place ourselves in the middle of something without knowing what has happened. At the end of chapter 16, Israel has named Ahab as their king. This is kind of a, uh, um, just a, a royal line of succession. Um, and the scriptures call Ahab, um, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. There was, uh, he was married to a woman named Jezebel. Uh, who is pretty famous for being just kind of a really bad person. And um, her family worshipped an idol called Baal. And so when he became king, all of these things sort of came together. They were outside influences on the kingdom of Israel. There were outside gods who were uh, an influence on the kingdom of Israel. Um, On Ahab's staff, he has an administrator whose name is Obadiah. We know the name Obadiah from one of the minor prophets. We don't know if he's the same Obadiah or not. It doesn't really matter for the purposes of this, but he's working for um, Ahab. But he is a follower of God. He is uh, a follower of Yahweh, Israel's God at the time. And so he's sort of Doing things behind the scenes that help Yahweh, that help keep the kingdom of Israel focused on Yahweh, because Ahab has turned his back on this. And because Ahab has turned his back on this, at the, the beginning of chapter 17 starts this remarkable journey for Elijah. He goes to Ahab, the Lord sends him to Ahab, and he says to Ahab, Tell Ahab that there's going to be a drought in the land for at least three years, and there won't be a drop of rain or dew until I tell you so. And so he takes this to Ahab, and obviously Ahab is very upset because he thinks that Elijah has control over this. Elijah's just a messenger. God has the control. And so he thinks that by killing Elijah, then he will be able to make it rain. And so uh, Elijah goes on the run. He, he's on the run. He's a fugitive for three years, hiding from Ahab. But the drought holds. And so through these three years, he's... he's uh, um, He's sort of quarantining in these houses as he goes along. God directs his path as to where he should go. And finally, God tells him at the end of chapter 17, beginning of 18, to return to Ahab to tell him that the drought is coming to an end. So all through this, it's been about three years, and it's now time to go and talk to Ahab and tell him that the drought conditions are now over. Elisha doesn't have a problem with this. He's God's messenger. He speaks for God. He's very confident in what God has to say. But there's this comic part in the beginning of chapter 18 um, where he meets Obadiah. And he sees Obadiah and he says, you know what? The time has come that I need to talk to Ahab, the drought is over, we're going to move on with our lives, everything's going to be restored, things are going to go great for everyone. And Obadiah says, I'm not going to Ahab to talk to him, because I'll go and tell him that you want to talk to him, and then when I come back, you're going to be gone, and you're going to be, and and I'll be the one that's on the hook, and I'll be the one killed. So Obadiah uh, kind of uh, hems and haws over this, and he wants to get out of this, he wants to weasel this um, uh, through there. And so, this scene that we're going to now, it takes us up to um, verse 16, and I'm going to read some of it. I'm going to paraphrase some of it, um, but this is now the story of Elijah's confrontation to the king Ahab. It says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So, he's given him this Uh, proclamation. Bring everyone together. Bring your prophets of Baal, bring the prophets of Baal's wife, Esherah, bring them all together to me on Mount Carmel. Here's the great thing about what Elijah just did. Baal's home is Mount Carmel. That's where he is in his home field. And so what Elijah is wondering is, why would you assemble all the prophets of our God, ...on his home field. Well, it gets better. They all assemble, and Elijah is talking to the people that are assembled there. So we, we, there's, there's different people in this scene. Elijah there speaking for the God of Israel, Yahweh. There are the prophets of Baal. And then there are the people of Israel who are kind of there in the middle of all this stuff. And they're kind of the witness to this whole thing. And so Elijah is actually talking to the people of Israel at this point... He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? And this is a great word, waver, because actually in the Hebrew it means limp. How long will you limp between these two options? How long are you going to be people that don't have any conviction? How long are you going to just be people that are undecided about where you are placing your faith? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people, they don't have anything to respond to this. They're just, okay, we're sheep in this matter, so just tell us the what you're going to tell us. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, here's the challenge. He tells them, bring us two bulls, all right? And I'll let the prophets of Baal pick their bull. They can have the first choice of their bull. Give me what's ever left over. And then here's what we're going to do. I want you to slaughter the bull. I want you to build an altar. I want you to put the bull on the altar. And then put the wood underneath the altar. But don't light the fire quite yet. Because what I want us to do is I want us to see whose God answers the call. I'll do the same with my bull. I'll slaughter it. I'll put it on the altar over here. I'll put wood underneath. But I won't light the fire. Now, Ahab thinks he's got Elijah right where he wants him. Because if this is false, they get to kill Elijah on the spot. If he is talking about a false god in the midst of the people, according to Deuteronomy 13, he is sentenced to death. We're on Baal's home turf. There are 450 prophets of Baal here and only one little Elijah. And how about this? Baal is the god of thunder and lightning and rain. And so if anyone should be able to come and light fire to this altar, it should be the god who controls the thunder and lightning and the rain. Elijah's goal is very simple. Get the Israelites to realize how foolish it is to worship a dead thing. So they prepare all of this. They do all the things that Elijah says. And there in verse 26, it says, They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, oh great and mighty Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. That should be a red flag right there. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they made. And so at noon... Elijah began to taunt them. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe your God is busy. Maybe he's deep in thought or he's preoccupied with something or maybe he's traveling or maybe he's sleeping and he needs to be woken up. Maybe you should just shout louder. And so what do they do? They take Elijah's advice and they just start to shout louder. And they cut themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed from them. And midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. There was no answer from Baal. No one, it seemed, was paying attention to the prophets of Baal to come and light this wood. Then Elijah says, all right, all right, people, come to me. I'm going to show you what a real God does. He says, but I'm going to up the ante just a little bit here. I'm going to ask you to put some water on the altar. Cover it, just cover it with water so that The meat is wet, the altar is wet, the wood is wet underneath it. I want you to do that not once or twice, but I want you to do that three times. Get it really good and soaked. Because here's the thing. God, my God, Yahweh of Israel, he's going to be able to light this fire no matter what happens. So, Elijah rebuilds the altar. They put the water all over it. He arranges the wood. They fill all these jars And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. In verse 36, it says this. He prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then without much prompting at all, fire came down of the Lord. It fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood (laughs) and the stone and the altar that it was on, completely destroyed by the fire from God. And when all the people saw this, they fell on their face and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. And then, because of the death sentence, Elijah rounds them all up, and they're taken into the valley, and those 450 prophets of Baal are killed. This is such an interesting story. Its it's place in the history of Israel is amazing, because what we see here is God not coming by the way we want him to. We don't see God coming when he's summoned by people who have this idea of false witness, of false wisdom. Elijah calls on them to decide who their God is going to be. He lets them make all the choices in their life. You get to pick the bull. You get to build the altar. We'll go to your spot and worship your God. And let's see what happens when you've made the choice. And God puts them to shame. God reduces what they believed was the truth. God reduces everything that they thought. And they set it up in their favor, but God destroys the wisdom of men. See, this is a story about wisdom. This is not a story about what we believe. This is not a story about what Israel believed. This is not a story about... All of those things put together, this is just a story about wisdom. What it means to be wise and intelligent and smart and be able to follow what we want to follow. And already in this scene, you can see that God is doing something here to human wisdom that we haven't been able to do. God is able to take apart the things that we see. God is able to take apart the things that we have built for ourselves And destroy them completely. It's God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom. The people were called to make a choice. Elijah puts it to them. And he says to them, if you think it's God, pursue it. Do it as long as you can. That thing in your life that you keep praying to. That altar that you've built to your own image. Those idols that you have in your own life. If you think it's God, do it. Pursue it. Keep it in your life and see how long you can go with it until God comes along and destroys it. The prophet Isaiah writes this in chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. And this is predicted in Isaiah this story of God's wisdom overthrowing human wisdom, putting it to shame. We want to be people that live without shame and yet we draw on human experience and all the ability of our ancestors, what we have been taught. And it's not about what we have been taught. It's not about what we have been able to achieve. It's about what God is doing and has done already. Because he's ready to take all of those things that we've built up and destroy them Completely see in this context, shame is shorthand for being exposed. We learned that back in the Garden of Eden from Genesis three they stood there in their nakedness and they knew they were naked. they had been exposed to the world around them, and they finally understood what shame meant and so shame has a different connotation in this in this world in this culture. they live in what's known as an honor-shame society. Honor-shame societies still exist, especially in the Middle East and in Asia. Your standing in society is based on your reputation as a person, your honor that people bestow on you. Have you shamed your family? Have you brought shame upon your nation? Have you brought shame upon yourself? If you have, you have no honor at that. And so the highest level... The highest level you can attain is being honored among your own people. And so here in in, in the, the nation of Israel, they believed in this social stratification. That if you were to be honored among people, then you were to be great among people. And if you were to be shamed among people, then you were outcast. You were nobody. You were in no society of ours. Let's push all of those things to the side. And so the worst thing to happen to someone was for your reputation to be publicly shamed, to stand in front of your own people and be shamed. And so worth and value is based on recognition of others. It's based on what others think of you. And so the name of God is so important to the Israelites, who God says he is and who you are carrying God's name into the community as. Because that was his reputation. To soil his reputation was to shame God. And so shame deprives the people. It deprives the self of identity of someone. If you don't have identity, if you don't have honor, then you're not a somebody. You're a nobody. You're a nothing. You have been wiped out completely. And so here in the Elijah story story, What we're looking at is the name of Baal becoming nothing. The name of Baal going forward and becoming a shameful reputation. In fact, Baal's name was so shameful amongst the Israelites after this point that when they started to continue writing things down, they replaced uh, the word Baal in anyone's name with the word bosheth, which means shame in Hebrew. We don't live in this society of honor and shame anymore. We live more in like what I would call guilt trip society. Like if you do something wrong, we're going to go on a guilt trip. And we're going to uh, just sort of make you feel bad about what you have done. We're going to make you feel bad about your choices. See, shame exists in the pocket of a community, but guilt is this association with the individual. Guilt says that you have done bad, and shame says you are bad. And there's a big difference in those things, because when we feel like we have lived in shame, when we feel like we are living our lives in a shame situation, We are saying to ourselves, my identity is as a bad person. It's not just that I have done wrong or done bad, it's that I am bad. Because it's in the eyes of the community, it's in the eyes of the people around you, those who are seeking to shame you. Shame exists at this corporate level. Shame is what we feel when we've been exposed as false, when we've been exposed as nothing. When we live in shame, we have given the world control of our identity instead of God. That's what we're saying. We're saying, as a Christian, I'm going to walk through the world in shame. And God's not saying that. God's not saying you are a bad person because He's come and He's lifted that from you. The world wants you to feel shame, but God does not. God's going to shame the things of this world because they are not of God. We have determined that our status depends largely on what the world values rather than what God values. So for us today, we want to think about what determines your value? What determines who you are? What determines your identity? What determines how you walk through life? Is it based on what the world values? Is it based on money or power or politics or influence or nationality? Because God has promised to bring all of these things to an end. All of these things that we've put our trust in, all of these things that we've built our lives around, all of these things that we've built the house on, God has promised to put an end to them and to turn people that rest on them into nobodies because they don't have a place in the kingdom of God. And so Paul wants to attack this posture in the Corinthian church as well. It just wasn't a time for the Israelites and it just wasn't a time for us. It was a time in Christ's life as well. Because Roman society continued to push the failure of human values into the social network of the church. It started to say, what we want to value are these things, and the church says, okay, that feels good to us too. Let's do that. And Paul gets so angry at the Corinthian church because he's looking at what he has taught them already. And the things that he's taught them don't line up with what the world values, with what Roman society values, with what the cults down the street value. Because we're people of God. That's our new identity. We've taken off the old and put on the new. And this is what that means is that we don't get to identify with the world anymore. And so Paul has to confront this trouble in his letter. And so he writes this letter to the Corinthians, and this is the first letter. <clears throat> it's in the first chapter. And uh, I'm going to read verses 18 through 31. And I have uh, I've worked kind of from my own translation here, so it's going to look a little bit like your copy. There's going to be a few words that are different, but those differences are important. So Paul writes this, For the proclamation of the cross is for their part folly. To those who are on their way to ruin, but for our part, the power of God to us who are on our way to salvation. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Where is the sage? Where is the expert? Where is the debater of this world order? Has not God made a fool of the world's wisdom? For since in God's wisdom, it was not through wisdom that the world came to know God, it pleased God to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is proclaimed. Since Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, we proclaim a crucified Christ. To the Jews, an affront. To Gentiles, folly. But to those who are called a Christ. God's power and God's wisdom. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Now, I want you to think about the circumstances of your call, brethren and sisters, that not many of you were intellectuals, as the world counts cleverness. Not many held influence. Not many were born to high status. But the foolish things of the world God chose... In order to shame the clever. And the weak things of the world, God chose to shame positions of strength. And the insignificant of the world and the despised, God chose. Yes, he chose the nothings to bring the nothing to something. So that all kinds of persons should not pride themselves before God. It is a gift from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom given from God, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who glories glory in the Lord. Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that good news for us? Isn't that what the gospel is? A message of good news that we can proclaim to people that this isn't the way it was intended to be, that this is the world's way, but what God intends for us is better and different and changes everything that we do. See, the problem in Corinth was the overvaluing of human wisdom. We were placing ourselves at the center, and it means we undervalue what the gospel means. It means we have to bring something to the gospel. It means that as Christians, we always go to people and say, yes, this is God, and he sent his son and died on the cross and redeemed us, but also it means we have to do this and this and this and this, because this is the way that Christians act, This is the way we've been conditioned to act and continue in our lives. And we're not Christians if we don't do these things in a particular order. When we undervalue the gospel, we bring things to it that reduce it to a mere lip service. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far away. The gospel doesn't make any sense to those who are headed for destruction. For people that aren't on the inside looking at the cross and saying, Yes, that's my symbol. That's my Messiah. That's my God there. It's foolishness. It's folly. And in fact, the word folly in Greek is where we get our word for moron. And so people that look at the cross and they see the gospel of Christ, Paul's calling them morons, they're fools. Because they don't see it in the way that we do. Paul reminds believers here that the cross is the gospel. And it has invited us into this great reversal of things, it's invited us into this place where we can become different people. He doesn't need an altar of fire any longer because the cross stands as a sign of God's wisdom. That's the sign now. We don't need to build altars. We don't need fire to come from heaven because we have a cross that stands there. And Paul is convinced the Corinthians have a skewed vision of what constitutes wisdom. And they're fighting against each other. The unity in the church is so important that Paul says it's not about these things. Remember, you're people of the cross. And so God's power and God's strength And God's wisdom is found in Christ, not in anything the world is going to offer you. Wisdom without the cross is called cheap wisdom because it robs us, because it's forgiveness of sin, but it's not forgiveness of the sinner. It's justification of the sin, but not justification of the sinner. Because we go to the cross and we don't lay all the things down there that the cross is meant to sacrifice and to stand in for. We take all of those things with us because we're not following God's wisdom. We still want to build wisdom on, all, on our altar. God will put anything that is measured by human standards to shame. It's just going to go right by the wayside. He's going to turn it into nothing. It'll be nullified. It'll be turned into dust. He will expose them for what they are, cheap and false. But this is honestly a hard choice for the people in Corinth. This is a really difficult choice for them because they see the way that society works and if they want to get ahead in society, if they want to be people that aren't seen as weirdos in their society, they need to kind of keep going with what society wants them to do. But also, they've been called to this new thing that God's been doing. They've been called to a new identity in Christ. Their society values are fighting against what Paul has proclaimed to them. And not just to the Greeks, not just to the Gentiles that were gathered in Corinth, but this is an even harder decision for the Jews. Because that word stumbling block, the word scandal, it means offense, something that's offensive. Anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse, Deuteronomy says. And so for the Jews to look at Jesus on a tree hanging there in humiliation as the symbol of their identity. Wow. That's offensive. But this is the symbol of who I am now in Christ. This is the symbol of who God is. This is the symbol of God's Wisdom, the highest level of what he can offer. That's right. God's wisdom says this is what power looks like. It's an unbelievably offensive image that threatens the things they value. What was intended to shame brought shame on those seeking control and power. Because Christ became shame to shame. Christ became shame on a cross to shame those people who thought they had it all together. The religious identity, the teachers in the temples who said, no, we have to build religion this way. We have to make the right choices. We have to line our lives through these identity markers in society. And Jesus said, nope, here's what it looks like. Here's what power looks like. Here's what identity looks like. Here's what your new life in Christ looks like. He exposes human wisdom for what it is, fallible, temporary, and self-absorbed. It keeps man at the center, and we can never be Christians in the heart if we continue to do that. The picture is replaced by a humiliated Messiah, not the leader of a great military force that is striking down anyone that disagrees with him, Not someone who comes wielding the strength of the cosmos. Here's the one they expected. But God empties himself of his power. He becomes nothing. He sits and has dinner with the nobodies on the fringes of society. And he hangs on a cursed tree. He becomes shame to shame. And guess what? Part of that good news, we have that shared identity with him. If he hangs there, let me hang there too. This is our identity as Christians. This is why it's such a stumbling block to so many people. It's so hard to conceive of a God who becomes weak in order to be strong. But Paul reminds the Corinthians of their station in life. None of you are what the world counts as high status. None of you have it. In fact, you don't even have to pick the story of Elijah. Any number of stories in the Old Testament work. Noah was shamed by the world's standards. It's not going to rain. You don't have to do that. What are you, some kind of crazy nut job? You don't have to do that. Abram was a liar. Moses was a murderer. David was small and insignificant in the eyes of a nation. And none of these people were significant in any real way. None Lesser than the nation of Israel itself. Surrounded by world powers in Babylon and Assyria. God takes what is weak so that he can shame the strong. He takes the little. He takes the insignificant. He takes the nobodies on the fringes of society that nobody pays attention to. And he sits them down at his table and he says, You have a place in my kingdom. And anyone who says otherwise, anyone who tries to build a kingdom on their own, has no place at my table. Not a single thing any of us possesses will be an advantage before the living God. We are proud of what we have and we're jealous for what we don't. That's what makes us human. But when we've been invited into the community, we have everything that we need. We have no more want. We have no more jealousy. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom to the Jews on the side of the mountain in Matthew. He says kingdom people are mourners. Kingdom people are the poor. Kingdom people are the oppressed. Kingdom people are those experiencing injustice. These are the people that aren't going to inherit the kingdom. These are people that are already there. These are people that have already heard the word of God and are following him around the countryside. They said, Yes, I want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to be part of that God who says, You are worthy. You are valuable. Our salvation is based not on our identification with the world's values, but our identification as these people, as these nothings. Has God not put to shame the world's wisdom? Paul asks. There are no more signs. The resurrection has made a fool of the world. God's wisdom is not something that we can achieve like human wisdom. The Bible is not something to understand, but rather it itself creates understanding. That's what we mean by God's wisdom. That here it is, we don't search for answers to our questions. We seek God's understanding in the Bible. If it was anything else, we could boast in it. And when we boast, something else is shamed. And so Jesus has come to bring all of these categories to shame. The cross forces us to radically reposition our lives so that we're no longer the center. But the cross of Christ is the center of everything. And the cross forces us to radically reevaluate what success looks like. It's no longer what status we have in society. It's no longer what our zip code is. It's no longer who we vote for or our political party or any of those things that have status in a community. Success looks something different when you're a cross person. And the cross forces us to radically redefine who somebody is, what somebody looks like in the kingdom. We have to be careful not to remake God into an image that's more comfortable for us. There is no manifestation of God that humanity's self-centered wisdom does not twist until it has made God into its own image. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, if it is I who says where God will be, I will always find there a false God who corresponds to me who is agreeable to me. So if we're going to be people of the cross, we're going to have to feel splinters in our back sometime. We're going to have to be a little uncomfortable with the way things are. Because we're going to be at odds with society. We're going to be at odds with what is valued. Christ is going to shame those things. He's going to put them in the grave. All of these things that he's covered over are going to come to nothing in the kingdom. Salvation, is not, salvation in Christ is not some sort of human self-improvement scheme. It's a radical rescue from our destruction. And so as the worship band comes to lead us in our final song, I want to shift because today's the first day of Advent. It starts Advent today. And Advent is about an anticipation of that great reversal. Advent is about expectation. What are we expecting to come? The picture isn't the way we always pointed out to be. That if we were to build a kingdom ourselves, it wouldn't look the way the kingdom came that Jesus brought. Our Messiah doesn't come the way we imagine. The picture of power in the kingdom doesn't start with a bang, but it starts with the cry of a baby. It doesn't start with high-born, royal status, but it starts with an unwed, pregnant, teenage woman. It doesn't start with a palace. It starts in a feeding trough. This is the picture of the kingdom. We identify. And Advent is all about that identification, that anticipation of what kingdom is going to come. What hope do we have if we hope for the things in our human knowledge we will be put to shame. God's wisdom is bringing this child to us. Emmanuel, God with us who we can celebrate and who we identify with. Will you pray with me please? God, your cross stands in the middle of everything. But to start, your kingdom is built on the shoulders of your son the image of a tiny baby, the image of an unwed teenage mother bringing life into this world, the savior of this world. So, Father God, this morning we just rid ourselves of all those things that we've held, all those social things, all those things in society that says we've built something great, that we are people with identity. Help us not to see them. Help us to start now, today, in this moment, with this church and these people, to push those things out of our lives, to push those things out of our community, and to be people of the cross, to be people of the manger, to be the lowly born. Help us to remember how we were called, not of high status, God, you have called us as people of insignificance, but you have elevated us through your Son and his great sacrifice. Empty us, rid us, so that our identity becomes one with Christ. And in this season of Advent, in this season of hope, help us to hope for the right things. Help us to be consumed with the things of your glory. Help us to be consumed of the things of your wisdom, not of us. God, we hold you so precious. And we keep all of these things in our minds as we wrestle with you every day, every moment. It's in your son's great name we pray, amen. Will you stand with us and sing one final time?